the video said, my name is Ruthie Oberg, and I am privileged to work with the Flower Pentecostal Heritage Center, which is the official archives of the Assemblies of God. And we have um, all of those wonderful historical documents that you are welcome to come over anytime and join us over there. Not only do we serve the Assemblies of God, but we serve the broader Pentecostal movement as well to keep the stories alive. Because there is something about forgetting our history. When we forget our history, we start to lose our identity. And we get a, a misunderstanding of who we are. And so it is absolutely vital that as the church of Jesus Christ, that we are careful to preserve that history, to promote that history, and to tell our stories. Amen? Because we have some stories. And so this morning, we're going to have just a few of those that I am privileged to share with you. As you know, it is Reformation Sunday, and many times when people think of the Reformation, they think of a, of a name of a man, particularly Martin Luther. Sometimes they'll throw in John Calvin or, or Knox or Zwingli, some of these great names. But the reality is that the, the uh, catalyst force for the Reformation was not a man. It actually was a message that was portrayed in a book that a monk got a hold of, opened up, read, studied, evaluated, and then all of a sudden the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit just shined right on a little verse that says the just shall live by faith, and Martin Luther went, wow! and the nail heard round the world at the start of the Reformation. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is not, not the man, not any of that. It's the book behind it. You know, one of the dangers of being in church for a long time or being raised in a, in a Christian environment or being in a nation that has a Christian background is that we can develop an over-familiarity with the things of God. And sometimes when that happens then, we lose the wonder of the gift that God has given to us. And so this morning, my goal is simply to tell you some stories to help rekindle the wonder. So that when you leave here this morning and you carry that Bible out of the building, you'll carry it a little more wondrously full of wonder. That would be wonderfully, wouldn't it? Okay. Carry it wonderfully, being full of wonder. You know, we all have a story, and that includes the story of the Bible. So we're going to look into that. How many of you like history? All right. How many of you would really rather have gone to recess? <laughs> all right. I love you. So what we're going to do this morning, even if you don't like history, everybody from a little kid to old people love stories, right? So just don't look at it as history. Look at it as stories, right? So we're going to have some stories. And I want to start off with this, this first understanding here of where, where the book came from. Because the first author of, of the Bible, anybody know what the first book of the Bible is? 
Genesis, biblically literate congregation that you have, Dr. Bradford. And the author of that book is Moses. Now, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And when he gets to the end of Deuteronomy, he is just about ready to go up on the mountain and meet his maker. And so in his last speech that he gives to the people of Israel that he has led all of these years in the wilderness... He sings them a song. And in this song, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he goes back and he rehearses some of their history. And then he gives this last warning. He says, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you will command your sons to follow carefully. See, this wasn't just a one-generation thing. This was meant to be generational. Which your sons will follow carefully all the words of this law. And then he goes on and says, for it is not a trivial matter to you. You know, I know some of us have games in our closet called Bible trivia, but we need to remember that this book isn't a, a trivial matter. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, it's not a trivial matter. Indeed, it is your life. Your life. And so what Moses is saying to these folks, he goes on to to, um, add to this, this, this definition of this is your life. Here's what he says. He says, it is by this word that you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. In other words, he is saying, if you will follow the commands and the warnings of this book, then it will bring you life. And if you don't follow it, then it will bring you death. Because by definition, death is simply the absence of life. And so when we are separated from this book, it brings a a culture of death. The light of the Word of God, when we are separated from light, it brings darkness. It's by definition is the absence of light. And so what we see here is Moses saying to the people of Israel, the commands that I have given you, these things that I have taken very carefully to write down for you, they are your life, and you will ignore them to your own peril. So the people of Israel, Moses dies, they go into the promised land, and here's God's people in God's land, and they have God's word. What could possibly go wrong? Right? Well, for the sake of time, let's move to the end of their story in the Old Testament. So we start here at the beginning, but let's take a look at a few stories just from Israel's history. By this time now, it's, it's 697 B.C., and we've got a king on the throne. He's the son of Hezekiah. We all love Hezekiah. Great revival under Hezekiah. He reinstituted the feast, and things were really good. And then he had a son, Manasseh, who reigned for 55 years. Now, Manasseh did not follow the ways of his father. Manasseh was actually one of the most evil kings that Judah had. 
And it appears to be, we know from Scripture that he reinstituted idol worship, the worship of Molech included. Matter of fact, the Scripture says that he caused his sons and daughters to pass through the fire, something specifically forbidden in the law of God. And very little regard for the law. And so whether or not he intentionally tried to repress it, the Scripture doesn't say. Here's what we do know. Manasseh reigned for 55 years, followed by his son, who reigned for two years, and then his grandson takes the throne, Josiah. And by the time we get to Josiah, we've got 55 years plus two plus in the 18th year of Josiah, so if anybody wants to do the math, we've got a period of time here. Apparently, the law had been so disregarded for so long that when Josiah, in a bid to to clean up Israel and figure out again who they were, he told them to go in and clean out the temple. Now, how many of you have ever had to go into the back bowels of a church to where the Christian ed closet is? It's a scary place to be. Because that's where they hide all the stuff that nobody else knows what to do with. All the leftover VBS stuff and all of this stuff just gets crammed back into that closet. And so they're cleaning out the temple and they open this closet. And lo and behold, what do they find? They're back behind some old Sunday school curriculum and all of that. They find the book of the law. They bring it to the king who reads the words of Moses and says, well, no wonder we're in so much trouble. And so he begins a revival of teaching the word of God again. And so we see then a revival under Josiah, and then his son takes the throne, and it only three months long, it was, it was a tough time, three months, and then his grandson Jehoiakim takes the throne. Now, Jehoiakim is not following the ways of his grandfather. He's following the ways of his great-great-grandfather. And we've got another prophet here, Jeremiah. And God laid the word of the Lord onto the prophet Jeremiah and said, I want you to write a letter to the king and tell him what's up. And so Jeremiah wrote this letter and says, Thus saith the Lord. You can read this there in Jeremiah 36. Thus saith the Lord. He sends it by his servant to the king. The king reads it. The king of the people of God in the land of God reads the word of God and tears it up and throws it into the fire. So the servant goes back to Jeremiah and said, Bad news. Um, He didn't take the message well. What should we do now? And Jeremiah says, we'll write it again. And how do we know that he did? Because it still exists today. We can read Jeremiah's letter to the king right here in the book of Jeremiah. And so here we are after all of this time. And how many of you have heard of Jeremiah? How many of you are real familiar with Jehoiakim? God's word has a way of outlasting those who come against it. See, this this book that we hold in our hands, it has more wisdom than Plato, more ethics than Aristotle, 
more beauty than Shakespeare. It has the power to transform not just an individual life, but a family, an organization, a group, a city, a nation, a world. And so because of that transformative power, just like we see with Manasseh putting it aside in a closet covered with dust, and Jehoiakim cutting it up into little pieces and setting it on fire, from that time to the time in which we live, this book is battleground territory. Matter of fact, there are 52 nations in our world today where the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, are either outright forbidden or repressed. Fifty-two nations. Why? Why? Because there's a power to it. How many of you love to go to the library in September for Banned Books Week? I enjoy that because every year I want to go look at the new, the new display and see what's the new things for this year that, that are banned. And so you've got Hemingway and Faulkner and Salinger and, and all of these people in there. But rarely do you see the most banned book in history. So if you go in next year, Melissa, and they don't have a Bible in there, just run up to the front desk and say, hey, you know what the most banned book is? See if they'll put one in for you. But yet, despite... The, the desire to bury it away, the desire to burn it, the desire to ban it. How many of you sitting here, just a quick survey, have a copy of this book? Wow! You all have banned literature. How many of you have more than five copies? How many of you, you have more than ten? Okay, we have issues. <laughs> I can't talk. I have, we, we, won't, we won't talk about it. We have them in, in different versions. We have them in, in different languages. We have them with pictures in it for the kids. We have it in comic book style. We have it on our phones. In our own language, able to read it. And yet, it is the most banned book. So let's take a look at some stories, because you would think if you had kings and kingdoms and, and priests and prelates trying to, to suppress something, that it would be hard to get hold of. But let's take a look at some stories, and let's see how well the endurance of the scriptures works. So are you ready to have some fun? All right, we're going to have some, some stories here. Now, after we get to the end of the Old Testament, we find that the nation of Israel, Palestine, at this point, is being ruled by some guys from Syria. And one of these leaders from Syria is named Antiochus Epiphanes. Isn't that a fun name to say? Antiochus Epiphanes, and one of his goals as the Syrian ruler there was to suppress the Jewish religion. And one of the ways that you do that, if you're going to suppress the Jews, there's two things that you have to attack, the Torah and the temple. It's the same for us today. If you want to really come against the church, you're going to have to attack our book and our gatherings. The church that comes together is the people of God. And so what we see happen is Antiochus, he attacks the temple. He puts up a, a statue of Zeus. So we're talking about an idol, a statue of Zeus right there in the temple. And then he 
he commands that all of the copies of the, of the Torah, of the Tanakh, all of the writings of the prophets to be destroyed. And he says to himself, that should take care of those Jewish people. But today, there's a nation in Israel and Syria is still struggling, yeah? And so what God does, when someone comes against the word of God, he always has a plan and he always has a people. And at this point, he raised up a family. Don't you love it when God raises up a family? A family called the Maccabees and they rose up and led a revolt and we had Jewish rule. And from this point on, the Jewish people then reverenced the law of God in a way that they did not even in the time of the prophets and Moses. And so God's word outlasts the rule of this emperor. Now, let's look, take a look at another story. By the time we get to the New Testament, we've got a whole new empire, Rome. Now, Rome really, we, we think of Rome as, as a very intolerant, persecuting sort of, of thing. But Rome really was actually very religiously tolerant. When you have a pantheon of gods, when, when you're polytheistic and you have many gods, just adding the gods of one more country is no big deal, right? And so if you want to worship a, a god over here that you call Jesus, that's fine. We just add him to the pantheon, our, our list of, of gods, right? But there was an issue because... The, these people following the New Testament, following the death of Jesus, um, these people had read in, in their book, their writings, that they were not to have other gods outside of Jehovah God. And so what happened is, is that these people then are worshiping one God and they refuse to worship all of the other gods. Now this is an issue. Because, see, as we go to war, what do, we, what do we need going in front of us when we go to war? We need our war gods. We need Athena and all of these gods going with us. And if you have a group of people who are refusing to give homage to the gods, the gods get mad. And so Rome is losing battles. And so this, this emperor, Diocletian, gets together with his co-regent, and they decide the gods are upset with us because we have these people. We're allowing them to worship their own god and not our gods. So we have to do something with them. And so Diocletian started a persecution. This was the first really global persecution in the Roman Empire. And he did the same thing that Antiochus did. He goes for their writings. Now, here's, here's where we are. We're not that long past the New Testament time, right? We're, we're here in the third century. Now, we've got some writings that have been going on. You know, um, Matthew wrote a book, and then, let's see, Mark wrote a book, Luke wrote a book, John wrote a book, then Luke wrote another book with a history of the church, and then Paul just went crazy. And he was just writing anybody and everybody. If he went to your town, boy, you got a letter, and he'd send it to you. So he writes a letter to the people in a, to the church in Ephesus, and it gets there, and it goes probably to somebody like Pastor Timothy, and Timothy gets it. And you know, there's even though it's written to the church in Ephesus, there's lots of little churches meeting in different places in Ephesus. So Pastor Timothy gets the letter from Paul, and he says, "Oh, we need to get this to all the other churches." So he makes a copy of the letter. 
And he sends it over to the other churches. And then, then they read it and say, this is really good. We ought to send this up to the people in Galatia. And so they do that. And then the people up in Galatia say, well, we got a letter too. Would you like a copy? And they say, sure. And so they make a copy and they send it down to Ephesus. And then somebody goes to Corinth and brings back letters. Do you see what's happening? We've got all these letters rolling around. And actually, Paul isn't the only one writing letters. The other bishops were writing letters, Arrhenius and, and Polycarp and Ignatius, and all these guys are writing letters. Now, so Diocletian says, we're going to have to get rid of their book. So here's, here's the deal. We're going to have to gather up all of these copies of these letters and these stories of Jesus. And, you know, God has a way of bringing good out of bad, doesn't he? We're going to see that all morning in these stories. And so what happened is, you know, you've got the soldiers knocking at the door, and they say, give me all your Christian writings. And this started some discussion among the Christians. Which writings can we give them? You know, because if they show up at the door and we could give them something, they might leave us alone. But which writings should we embrace and protect with our life? And so what this did was it led to a discussion in the church which books are actually canon, the Bible, the Word of God, and which books can we just get, turn over. And so this is the beginning of the development of the 27 books of the New Testament. See how God does wonderful things. And so Diocletian does everything he can to destroy this book and to destroy these people. And in one place, he had the, the manuscripts burned. He built a little monument over it that says, Thus endeth Christianity. But you know what? Diocletian died. Because that's how history works. And he was followed by another emperor by the name of Constantine. And Constantine, when he comes into power, he decides to make Christianity a religion that is acceptable. And he goes so far to say, you know, all these churches need unity. What would unify them? Well, it's their book. So Constantine contacts a guy, Eusebius, and he says to him, you know, Eusebius, if I give you some money from, from the emperor's coffers, do you think you could make 50 Bibles and have them ready and prepared for us? And Eusebius said, I don't know why not. And so less than 50 years from the time that Diocletian is gathering up all of these manuscripts to burn, Constantine is regathering what still remains and at government expense paying to have them printed so that God's people still have God's word. God has a way, doesn't he? And the glory of Rome is gone. If you go there today, you'll get on a tour bus and drive around and look at some ruins, and they'll tell you all about Diocletian and Nero and Caligula and all of these guys. Meanwhile, we still have the book, the Word of God, right here in our hands. Amen? Amen. Now, here's what happened after the fall of Rome, because no empire lasts forever. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away, right? And so after the fall of Rome, now Rome had united the people with a, a language. First they used Greek, but after, after a while, after it got more solidified, Latin became the common language of many of the people. And so the Bishop of Rome in 382 has this idea, and so he calls his secretary, Secretary Jerome, because secretaries are a good thing to have. They're, they're, very, they're very wonderful. He calls Jerome and he says, you know, I really think it would be a good idea for us to take 
the scriptures that we have, all of the manuscripts, and translate them into Latin so that everybody could read them. Jerome, do you think you would mind taking on that project? If so, then we'll, we'll give that to you and that'll be your baby. And Jerome said anything to get out of the office. And so Jerome moves to a little cave in Bethlehem and he begins to translate. And he takes all of those manuscripts that were floating around, gathered them together, and he translated them to the Latin. We know it today as the Latin Vulgate because that word Vulgate is from the word vulgus, which we think of vulgar, don't we? And when we think of vulgar, we think of crass. But what it means is common. So this is the Latin common Bible for the common people. Isn't it wonderful to have the Bible in your language? Because if you can't speak Greek and they've got the Greek manuscripts, even if you got one and could read, you can't read it. But now it's in Latin. Glory be to God. And so we've got that Latin thing. But then... At the end of the 5th century, something happened. And we need to remember that what happens in history affects God's people. This is why it's important for us to understand history. And we got this thing happening across Europe where, where these Germanic tribes, these, these lovely Vandals and Goths and Ostrogoths and Busygoths and all of these Gothic sort of folks start coming across and they, and they, they um, defeat the Roman Empire. Rome is no more. And so what happens to the Roman Empire is that it gets divided up then. We've got all of these different lands everywhere that used to be unified by Rome, but are now independent. And they've got to figure out how to lead themselves. And one of the things that develops at this time is different languages and dialects in all of these different places. And so rather than everybody speaking Latin, over time, Latin devolves into German, French, Spanish, English, all of these Romance languages that you've heard of. And so now we have all of these different languages. But here's the trouble. When the church doesn't keep pace with what's happening technologically in the culture, we often find ourselves out of the loop. And that happened because we've got the scripture in Latin, but rather than the Bishop of Rome, who is now the Pope, rather than hiring people in all these languages to translate it into the vulgar, the common language, what they decided is that the Bible is so holy and so sacred that we must keep it in a sacred language, which is the language of us. We always think our language is the best, don't we? And so we have the Bible in Latin, but the common people don't speak Latin. And so what happens then is effectively they have taken the word of God and they have hidden it away from the people. It's locked away in the dead language of Latin. And so we have an entire people all around the world who have no access to God's word except what a priest might tell them. And so this is where we get into what's called the dark ages. Because what is the definition of dark? The absence of light. And the scripture is hidden away. And matter of fact, it gets so bad that by 1229 in a church council, listen to this, this record, this vote from, from the, the church council. We prohibit also that the laity, that's the common folks, 
non-clergy. We prohibit that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament, but we most strictly forbid their having any translation of these books. So, none for you. And this leads us to a place because one of the things that's going to happen next here in, in history is a little thing called a plague. We understand a plague, don't we? And this plague sweeps across Europe and decimates the clergy. Eight out of ten clergy died in the Black Death. And because, you know, they're the ones treating the sick, giving last rites, starting the hospitals, all of that. So it decimates the clergy. And so what we end up getting is they're saying only the clergy can have the Bible, but now that the clergy is decimated, we're hiring anybody who put on the robe and say the mass, and now we have a very uneducated clergy. Now, by the time we get then in the middle of, of that black death, we get a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. Bright light. Yes, somebody's a fan out here, I heard him. <laughs> and John Wycliffe was a don at Oxford. He taught at Balliol College. And he, of course, can read Latin because that's all you use at Oxford. There are still places in Oxford today where the only language allowed to be spoken is Latin. And he can read Latin. And so because he has access to his Bible, he pulls it out and he's reading it and he's looking around at the ignorance of his fellow clergy and the absolute darkness of the people. He's also a parish priest. And he gets this idea and he says to his class, I want us to do a class project. I want us to take the Latin Bible and you're going to work on your translation skills. We're going to take the Latin Bible and we are going to translate it into English. Everybody ready? And they're all, oh, we're, we're with you. We're with you, Wycliffe. And so they begin to translate from the Latin to the English and finish this up in 1382. And so now for the first time, we've got Genesis to Revelation in English. But see, most of your people that they were wanting to get to uh, couldn't read the English that they had written because they were an illiterate society. And so Wycliffe's followers, they called them lollards, because that, which is a, a word that means to mumble, because the English language is so crass. It's a mutt language. It's not like the high language of Latin. But they took this English, and they would go into the fields, because they couldn't do it in the church. So they went outside of the church to the fields, and they began to preach in English. And God began, began convicting people. And as they got the light of God's word within their lives, it was transforming English society. Out of this, long story, but go study it, you get a peasant's revolt and, and all of that fun stuff happening. And so people are not real happy with Wycliffe because so many people are following. It was said that by 1399, if you met two people coming down the road, one of them would be a Wycliffe follower. This was getting serious. And so when a new king was, was coronated in 1399, King Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke, you remember him, Shakespeare, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And Henry Bolingbroke is sworn in. The church comes to him and says, Henry, we've got a problem because we've got all of these people, they're reading the Bible in English and they're starting to get ideas about their own freedoms. And we can't have that. And so in 1401, Henry IV put into action the act for burning of heretics. 
and they began to burn not only Wycliffe's followers, but Wycliffe's Bibles. They lit the fires at Smithfield through the 1400s. It got so bad that in 1415, there were seven parents, five men, two women, who were burned at the stake for the crime of teaching their children the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer in English. Five men, two women, burned at the stake at Smithfield for that crime. That's how serious the issue was. And in order to get rid of, of Wycliffe's influence in 1428, the Council of Constance came together and said, well, you know, he's got so much influence. How about we just, just in order to make sure that everybody knows he's a heretic, let's dig up his bones and we'll burn them because we can't burn him. So they dug him up out of the cemetery there in Lutterworth, England, had a big ceremony. Matter of fact, one of his pupils lit the fire to burn the bones of Wycliffe. They burned them down to ashes and they threw them in the swift river and said, that should take care of that. But can I just tell you, if you go to Lutterworth, England today, and you go just two blocks up and around a corner, you'll find the headquarters of the United Kingdom Gideon's organization where they are printing Bibles in English and disseminating them across the United Kingdom. God has the last word. His word still stands. Now, there's a couple things that are going to happen that are so important that we need to, to look at before we get, get to some real exciting stuff. One is in 1453, something very important happens. And you know, again, God has a way of bringing good out of bad, doesn't he? He does. In 1453, the Ottoman Turks, the Muslim hordes, began to sweep across uh, the Middle East. And they came into the, the headquarters, the capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire, Constantinople. We know it today as Istanbul. And these Ottoman Turks destroyed the, the uh, buildings, they, they tore down, they didn't destroy the Hagia Sophia, but they desecrated it to become a mosque, which it is today. Now, if you're a Greek monk, and all of this time, because see, the eastern part of the empire is still doing Greek, and they've been protecting and hiding all of these Greek manuscripts. They have them there in their monasteries. And you see the, the hordes coming, and you know they're going to burn everything you have. When the house is on fire, what's the first thing you grab? The books, right? Okay, work with me. And so these little Greek monks go in and they grab the manuscripts. They run out of the monasteries there in the east and they start running west for protection, bringing with them all of these Greek manuscripts. And so for the first time, Western Europe then has access to the word of God, not in Latin, but in Greek. Yay! The next exciting thing that's going to happen is over in Germany, there's a little fella named Johann. And Johann gets this brilliant idea. He was working in his dad's shop, and he gets an idea that, that he could make a printing press and use movable type, and rather than having to handwrite books, you could print them from one, one little, little uh, tablet. And so he starts doing this, and that's in 1545. He goes out and says, I've done a thing, and... Uh, 
his thing was a guillotine to the dark ages, was the guillotine to the ignorance. And now we have books being able to be published. The first book he printed on his press was Jerome's Latin Vulgate Bible. And so can you see what might be happening here? We're at a place where things have been dark and the people have been separated from the word of God. But God now has has struck a, a match under some people in England. And he has now brought in Greek manuscripts that are flooding Europe. And he's put together a way to mass market those manuscripts. Do you think something might be fixing to happen? You better believe it. You better believe it. So what we see next is that Erasmus, he's a a monk from there in Rotterdam. He's up in Holland, and he gets this idea. You know, we've got all of these Greek manuscripts. Why don't we gather them together, evaluate them, and see how close we can get to the originals? And so he did that. He compiled them, and then he thought, you know what would be great? If we published these, and what we could do is we could make a little parallel Bible. We could put the Latin, and then we could put the Greek together, and wouldn't that make everybody happy? And so he did this project. He put together his New Testament, Novum Testamentum, and he he dedicated it to the Pope, Pope Leo. And he said, here, Pope, I have made the Word of God in the Greek and the Latin. Isn't that great? Shouldn't I get a promotion? It was immediately blacklisted immediately. But you know, if you look at history, there is a group of people who love blacklisted books. We call them university students. (laughs) And if you want your student to read a book, you don't put it on the reading list because they'll avoid those. But if you stand there and say, don't anybody read this book, everybody will immediately go out, get on eBay and try to find one. And that's what happens here. And so we've got being produced over on the continent, Erasmus's New Testament, and they're being smuggled because they're blacklisted. They're being smuggled in ships across the English Channel, and they make it to a little river called the Cam in England. And they go up way of the Cam, and they end up at a little school called Cambridge. And in Cambridge, they run into a young man by the name of Thomas Bilney. And Thomas Bilney reads this book, and he is so amazed when he reads the Greek and the Latin, and he's looking that he's thought, you know, we should start a Bible study. And so he invited some of his other students to meet him at the White Horse Inn, and they had a a Bible study there at the pub. (laughs) Seems a little wild, doesn't it? And so they're having this Bible study, and attending Bilney's Bible study is another young student by the name of William Tyndale. And William Tyndale's life was so transformed by what he was reading and looking into and studying the Bible that he got this idea. He said, what would it do for our nation if we could take the Bible and put it into a language that they could understand? He went to his bishop, the Bishop of London, Bishop Tunstall, and he said, here's my idea. Can I have permission to start this project? And Tunstall said, absolutely not. It's against the law. But Tyndale had this still burning within him. One day he was at lunch. He was a tutor in Gloucester. And he was there with with his, his students' family. And they had invited the local priest over. 
And Tyndale began to share with the priest his passion for seeing the word of God in the language of the common people. And the priest responded back to Tyndale, and he said, we would be better without God's law than without the Pope's. And something rose up in William Tyndale, and he just got a little in your face. And he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. God help me if as long as I live, if God spares my life, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scripture than you do, Father Priest. And so he went to the continent, and he was an incredibly brilliant man. He spoke eight languages fluently, so he was able to blend in wherever he went. And, you know, we have this picture of him that we see, but we really don't know what he looked like. This is just something made up so that we have a picture. Because if you're a wanted man, you don't sit for your photograph. So we have no idea what he looked like. But he worked on this project in Europe. He went over to Wittenberg, met a guy named Martin Luther, and said, could I borrow some of your presses? Luther said, sure, why not? I'm done with my German. Have it for your English. He starts printing. Many moves on, gets other places. He finally gets it done and begins to ship it across the English Channel, smuggled in in flour barrels. And they open it up when it gets there, and they begin to disseminate it. And God's Word begins to change the hearts and minds of many people in England. But the law still stands. And one of the men there to make sure that law is kept is King Henry VIII. And when Henry VIII gets mad, heads will roll. And so Tyndale is finally betrayed by a friend, Henry Phillips. He's turned over the authorities there in Brussels. Henry sends over the order, kill him. And so they take William Tyndale and they tie him to a stake, put the sticks all around him, put his Bibles gathered around him on the stake, and he is allowed to make a last statement. And John Fox records for us in his book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, that as William Tyndale, the translator into English, is tied to that stake, that he says these words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. They light the fire, they burn the man, they burn the books, but did you know God hears the prayers of his dying martyrs? And in just three years, God was able to move on a man like Henry VIII. And in three years, Henry VIII ordered an English Bible in every parish church in the nation. Now, he didn't want Tyndale's work, so we hired somebody else, Myers Coverdale and then, then John Rogers. But I want to just show you something just because I think it's cool. Because what they did, they weren't the scholar that Tyndale was, so basically they used 90% of Tyndale's work and just put it in there, put their name on the cover. But I want you to look, take a look at what Rogers did. Right here between Malachi and the book of Matthew, right here are two initials, W.T., William Tyndale. What a treasure. What a treasure we have. Now today, our Bible comes in many formats, many different ways it's distributed. But let me tell you, it still has the power to change lives, to change nations, and it is to our own detriment, according to the first author, Moses, if we ignore it because he says, this is not idle words, this is your life. 
And so as you leave today, my goal in telling you these stories is that you would take your Bibles, hold them a little more respectfully. You know, folks gave their life so we could have this in our language. Do you know folks still are? You know, there's Assemblies of God missionaries around this world learning languages, putting them into written form just so they could translate this book into languages that have never even had a written alphabet. I want you to hold it more respectfully. I want you to open it more reverently. And I want you to read it more regularly. Because let me tell you, as Pentecostal people, we should be the most biblically literate people of all of Christianity. Because we love this book. We love what it tells us. We love the Lord it tells us about. We love the Spirit who illuminates it for us. There's an old poem that says, Hammer away, ye hostile hands. Your hammers fail, God's anvil stands. It is still, as Moses said, it is our life. And we are under the authority of God, not only to read it, believe it, and teach it, but to pass it on to our children and to our grandchildren. So could I encourage you next Sunday, if it's not already your habit, there's a little thing called Sunday school or Christian ed classes or whatever we call them here at Central. I haven't been here long enough to know what we call them. But you're already here. You might as well come an hour early or stay an hour later and open the book, learn it, live it, and watch it change your life, your family, and our nation. Amen? Amen. Amen.